sweet it is to worship together, and what a joy. Thank you, Chandler. Thank you, music team, for leading us. Uh, Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to be in God's Word today. Outline you can use there in your bulletin to follow along if you'd like. Children's pages are on the counter and back if you need to make use of those. Yesterday was the Walk for Life. They uh, this year had one united walk rather than several different ones in different places around the Albuquerque metro area. Uh, I believe it was reported 353 walkers. I think they said they had their 40-something, maybe 45-something thousand dollars. They said were raised just yesterday. So um, praise God for that, and what a pleasure and a joy to be a part of uh, what is one of the battlefronts today uh, in our culture and in our society, that being the one for life. So thank you for those of you who walked, those of you who sponsored, those of you who prayed. The Lord protected it. It was a sweet time of fellowship and awesome just to see uh, all the believers out. All right, you got your spot marked. Let's continue to worship and go to God's word. Join me as we pray and ask for his blessing. Um, gracious God, would you speak now here to us individually by your spirit for your glory because we need you. Lord Jesus, would you be glorified in this place, in our hearts, for our good, for the sake of your name. And all God's people said, amen. Come back again to the book of Ruth this week. Remember the setting. It's in the time of the judges. Um, the nation of Israel is in uh, a season of moral anarchy, essentially. And that's what the background is, the backdrop for Ruth. And yet, when we come to chapter 2, we see here some of the most, we see some of the most profound virtue. Um, surprisingly, that we'll find anywhere in all of Scripture, in Ruth and in Boaz. Remember the theme of chapter 1 from last week, uh, a word, an idea used some dozen or so times, and that was return. After 10 years, Naomi has returned to Bethlehem and to the homeland. She told Orpah and Ruth to return to their people and their gods, uh, Orpah did, Ruth didn't. She returned with Naomi back to the land. The question really is, Naomi, after all of the sort of hedging your bets kind of decisions that have occurred in chapter one, she's not really home yet. And the question is, will she really return? And that's what the book of Ruth is going to essentially chart for us, among other things. In chapter two, we see in stark reality the providence of God. Providence is that work of God through his secret and sometimes obscure means that we don't usually see um, from this side looking forward. We most often recognize from the other side looking back. It's that work of God that will bring about his inescapable conclusions but so often does so in such a way that it escapes the headlines so that it is not readily known. It always results in giving him the greatest glory. Or to say all that another way, providence is God's unmistakable work that by some is easily mistaken. Today, in Ruth chapter 2, God's perfect providence meets his lavish grace. And it is a sweet passage 
And at the intersection of providence and grace, lives are being transformed. Destinies are actually being written by God's oversight, sovereign providence. Providence. I know what that is. Don't, don't, don't test me. It's providence. And his daily, moment-by-moment, personal grace. And they're both so evident. I hope this morning you're willing to see your life at that intersection where lives are transformed and destinies are defined, where providence and grace meet. As we follow the the story this morning, join me and let's uh, read the first part of Ruth chapter 2. We'll see that Um, We'll see the providence that God has provided, that God has prepared here, and we'll see that the Lord oversees his work from beginning to end. The Lord oversees his work from beginning to end. Pick up with me, Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So Ruth departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, and she said, this is Ruth, sorry, Ruth said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Pause there. The Lord oversees his work from beginning to end, and he does it for his glory. Where do we see the author showing us providence in this passage? I, I really think it jumps out in uh, three different places maybe four. First, um, in the quick background note that's there in verse 1. Now, Naomi just sort of happened to have a relative. It says that Boaz is a man of great wealth. Um, The word used for wealth can also be used for honor or valor. Um, In different contexts, it can mean he has a lot of respect because of the inherent nature of his integrity or because of his inherent standing in the community. You get the idea? So it's not that the word always means both. It's just that the same word can be used in two different contexts. I think the NAS translators went with a man of great wealth rather than a man of great valor or a man of great integrity because the issue before us is the need of Ruth and Naomi. And the man is a landowner. And that's going to immediately address their issue. But understand, I think, A good Israelite reading this in the original would know that the issue here is not just their financial situation. And it is the fact of Boaz's character that he is a man of valor that will do more than just change what they're going to have for lunch that day, but will actually transform their destinies. So, oh, by the way, there's this guy, and he's from the family of Elimelech. We've heard that name before. That's Naomi's husband who's passed away. And within this household is this man. 
You see, this is here for a purpose, this little side note in verse 1. Um, given the need and the emptiness of Naomi and Ruth, Scripture doesn't waste any words. It doesn't have any throwaway verses. It's here to prepare us. God has been preparing all along. When we read verse 1, what we really know is that Aslan is on the move. Where else is the author showing us providence? Verse 3. So Ruth departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. My text has a marginal note that says the literal rendering of the Hebrew is her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. Can you not make it more obvious? Oh, hey, by the way, looky there. She just, I don't know, stumbled upon the random field of Boaz. Sheer coincidence, just dumb luck, right? Or maybe something more. Providence, verse 4. How about the way the author introduces Boaz? Now, behold, I had a prof in seminary who said, especially in the Hebrew, the term used here for behold uh, in narrative can often uh, have the sense of, looky there. <laughs> well, looky there. She's in Boaz's field, and wouldn't you know it? The guy just happens to show up coming from Beth Bethlehem, coming out to check out how the work is going that day, to have just a casual conversation with the foreman over his reapers. What do we have already thus far, just in verses 3 and 4? Ruth ends up in the perfect place. And Boaz shows up at the perfect time. Just a coincidence. There's one more thing, verse 5. Then Boaz said to a servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose, whose young woman is this? Notice that Boaz notices her. Now, it doesn't say that he noticed her. I would have liked verse 5 to say that. Um, in fact, I, I thought, hey, I think this is another sign of providence. But it doesn't say notice. The author really wanted to emphasize that. If it's not my idea, if it's his idea, he would have given us a hint. And guess what? He did. It's just not found until verse 19, where later Naomi says, may he be blessed of the Lord, my daughter, who has noticed you. This happens back here in chapter 5. Perfect place, perfect time, perfect focus. God brings to Boaz's attention this young woman. Providential in every way. Now consider, now that we know that it's providence clearly at work, consider how God oversees his providence and he uses it from beginning end to end to bring himself glory. Um, three ways we see God's providence at work here. You may want to jot down. First, we see the work of God's providence through human initiative. God's providence works through human initiative. In verse 2, what does Ruth say? Let me go. Let me go glean. And then down in verse 7, she says it again. It's, re, it's uh, reiterated here, it's reported here by the head of the reapers. She said to me, please let me glean. And we're going to find it again later on in verse 17, same thing. So she went and she gleaned in the field, taking the initiative in each case. She could have just stayed home that day, 
She could have just licked her wounds, commiserated with Naomi, says, said with her, I don't know what we're going to do or how we're going to live. But we know that in the nation of Israel, God has provided a way for the poor to have their needs met. In fact, a, a study of this concept is a profound foundation for our understanding of how we should do benevolence in the church and um, uh, uh, social work, giving, charity in our community. God in Leviticus chapter 19 commanded the people when you, um, when you reap your fields, don't reap to the corners, don't glean the very edges, the very last, but leave it so that the poor can come and put in a little work and take home a little food. Interesting way to do it, isn't it? Well, in any case, that's a whole other topic for a whole other time. What we find is uh, Boaz here and, and even his, his uh, workers, his, his leaders and his reapers, they, they are men of the word. They are faithful to the law. They are obeying. They're told not to go back and pick up. If you're working along and you drop a sheaf of grain, don't bend down and pick it up. Just keep moving. Leave it there for the needy to come along and take it in their need. And so that's what Ruth and probably a small band of others poor in the community are there following along behind the workers. Well, what's the point? What we see is the work of God's providence through human initiative. Ruth says, you know, my dear mother, my mother-in-law Naomi, there's a way for us to be provided for because God has said there is. And so can I, can I go work? I understand that's how it works here in the nation of Israel. And the sovereign God uses her human effort to bring about his providential purpose. Don't ever think that the sovereignty of God means, well, I should just sit, sit back and, and let God's will happen. No, we're called to obedience. And through our obedience, God brings about his providence. It's an awesome truth of scripture. This, this, is, this is why we go to work. This is why we pay our bills. This is why we change our oil. I don't know, if God doesn't want the engine to explode, he'll take care of it. This is why we train our children. This is why we share the gospel. This is why we read our Bibles, because God uses what we feed on to transform us providentially and perfectly in his time. This is why we love the truth and we speak truth. This is why we ask forgiveness. This is why we reconcile relations. This is why we do everything we do. Because the work of God's providence comes through human initiative. Ruth here is just being faithful. Second, we see the work of God's providence beyond human initiative. In, uh, at the end of chapter 1, we see that Ruth and Naomi return from the land of Moab to Bethlehem. And they don't have any idea what God's going to do through that. In fact, they don't have the slightest idea of what the author of Ruth hasn't even told us yet that God is going to do, but you probably know the end of the story. He's going to bring Ruth into the lineage of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I don't think they were planning that. <laughs> hey, let's go back to Bethlehem, so I don't know, maybe we could be part of a dynasty someday. No, no, far beyond their initiative. They chose to return because they heard that God's Favor had come, that God had visited his people in the land, the drought was over, fruitfulness was coming. 
but far beyond their own initiative. When in verse 3, it says she departed and went and gleaned in the field. In verse 6, when Boaz starts asking questions, now who is this woman? In neither case did they have any idea where this would lead. Boaz is just trying to figure out who's the new girl. Where did she come from? She doesn't quite look like one of us. The Lord uses what you do. And often he does far more than you'll ever know. Far more than you and I can ever conceive of or imagine. If we walk in faithfulness. This is why we pray. This is why we follow God's spirit. I don't know what you're doing. I know this much, so I'll do this. But Lord, I pray you'll do even more than anything I'll ever know. This is why we fast and seek God. This is why we repent. This is why we come and worship. This is why we fellowship. Because we don't just want the things that we can conceive of, that God would bless them. What we want is to fall in line with what God has in mind to do that he will use to bless the world far beyond us. That's what we want. Supernatural lives. Divinely appointed, you know, moments where we get to be in the middle of what he's doing. God's providence beyond human initiative. And lastly, we'll see God's providence in spite of human initiative. Sometimes he works with us. Sometimes he works beyond us. And on occasion, praise God, he works against us and in spite of us. The very beginning of the book, in verse 1, Elimelech decides to take his family to Moab. And it doesn't seem like a great choice. It seems like an unfaith kind of decision. Later on, Ruth will encourage her sons to take on Moabite daughters there in the land of Moab, which is really not a good choice, we know. And on and on it goes. At one point, Naomi, in fact, tells what to Ruth and Orpah? Hey, y'all stay here. Go back home. Go back to your people and your lives and, and your land and your tribe and your gods. Go back. And what does God and his providence do? He just pricks Ruth's conscience enough to say, you know what, Ruth, why don't you just um, argue with your mother-in-law and show your loyalty. I don't know. The text doesn't say. But God's providence is so evident. For Ruth to be there in Bethlehem. And out in the fields. Boaz's field. Is not in Moab. They weren't going to find it there. They had to get back. The, the Israelite line. That leads to the Messiah. So far as everything we know at this point. Does not go through Moab. And yet, in spite of all of their choices, God providentially has a better plan. So this is why we fall on our knees. This is why we look back at the end of our year or pause with our family, maybe at birthdays or other anniversaries or other times, and we say, what has God done here? Maybe in a time of great trial, we say, what has the Lord been doing in preparation? preparing me for this, or maybe at a time of great victory, and we close a chapter, and we look back, and we say, you know what, now that I think about it, we saw God here, and here, and here, and here, and I had no idea that he was doing it at the time, and in fact, I was trying to do something different, but in spite of my initiative, God 
in his providence was overseeing his work from beginning to, head, beginning to end. And so we, we shake our heads and we just go, Lord, thanks. <laughs> Who thought of this, Lord? No one but you. Thanks. So we work and God uses it. We attempt and God infuses it. We sin and God thwarts it. And then he turns it around to bring himself glory because he oversees his providence from beginning to end. If you know Christ, then that hope is yours in whatever season you find yourself. This is not a God to fight. This is a God to worship. God has prepared his providence and he oversees it from beginning to end for his glory. Now, let's see provident meet with grace. Grace is when God seeks to give you or me unmerited favor, something we, we did not deserve. Unmerited favor comes to the willing and the unworthy. Next, we see unmerited favor comes to the, pardon me, to the willing and unworthy. I think I said it wrong the first time. Unmerited favor comes to the willing and unworthy. These aren't two different groups of people. These are the same group of people, both willing but also at the same time unworthy. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and you came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and indeed you have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Pause there. Ruth trusts in something that she hasn't earned. Unmerited favor or grace. Look at how Ruth speaks of herself, and look at how she is spoken of. In verse 2, what she says way back there to Naomi Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. She doesn't say, hey, look, I'm a pretty hard worker. I think I could go impress any of the farmers around here, and they'll probably give me some stuff. No, I'll go, and may I find favor. What does she say in verse 10? Why have I found favor in your sight? What does she say in 13? I have found favor in your sight. Grace after grace after grace is how Ruth understands her situation. She comes with no merit of her own, but she trusts in something that she has come maybe just at the very beginning of understanding, but she has come at least a little to understand about the God of Israel, about who he is, and she trusts in what he may do. Notice also how she speaks of herself, not boasting of her power, but what does she say at the, at the end of verse 10? Why should you take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She knows well the, the people from which she comes. The, the Moabites are adversarial to the nation of Israel. They are enemies of the God of Israel on so many levels, and she gets that. 
But she personally and individually is not. She is willing. So she knows she's unworthy. She's willing. And then how does she close out what she says in verse 13? I am not like one of your maidservants. <laughs> hey, hey, you've got, you've got all these, these lovely folks here that work for you, Boaz. And, and you've got all these other people here who are just, you know, commoners who've come in their need. I'm, I'm not even like any of them. I, I don't even belong to this nation. You don't even owe me the scraps out of the field, she says. Also notice how she's spoken of in verse 6, the, uh, the foreman calls her the Moabite woman. I don't think that's derogatory. I think it's just simply descriptive, although everybody would know it's not a great description. Um, who is she? Oh, you know about her. She's the Moabite woman. Does everybody in Bethlehem know about her? In fact, they do. Because in chapter 1, it says when Naomi came back into town, that the entire city was in an uproar because of her. So word has gone out several times in the book and here in chapter 2. The narrator calls her Ruth the Moabitess. What's the point? We're reminded multiple times that, that Ruth knows and sees that she is unworthy, and yet she is so willing. She comes not because she's worthy, but she comes because of a God who is worthy and is able to minister to her. All of this is clearly meant to reveal God's grace. Boaz, in fact, before we're done with the book, will be the redeemer like Jesus, but, but that's for another time. That's not chapter 2. God's work for sinners in the book and before the book and ever since has always been grace. But the book is, is singing it at this point. And this grace is seized by those who come recognizing they're unworthy, but they are willing to cast all of their trust upon the Lord. Ruth isn't trusting in her merit. Why? Because she's a foreigner. On top of being a foreigner, she's an outcast because of her situation. On top of that, she's peculiarly needy at this point of her life. On top of that, she has, so far as we know, very, very little to offer. But she comes asking God to show his grace. Well, how about you and me? Friend, if you're here this morning and you've not yet tasted of the grace of God, we so desperately would want that for you because it is the hope of our lives. It's all we know. We don't preach ourselves. We preach the grace of God through Christ. It is the only hope for mankind. And if you haven't yet embraced Christ, then know full well that you are Ruth. You're a foreigner. Oh, you're, you're not from the, the line of Moab, maybe, but you are from the line of Adam, who is the forefather of all rebels who broke the law of God. And the seeds of his corruption uh, flow through your veins, don't they? And so you're a foreigner from God by birth. No one has a genetic claim on God. Not Ruth, not the Moabites, not you, and certainly not me. You're an outcast by your own choice because you've chosen sin. Adam and Eve were outcasts, weren't they? They didn't say, hey, can you kick us out of the garden because, eh, it's all right here, but I just kind of want to see, you know, the rest of the continent and just check out the world. Nope. But by their choice, they ended up outcasts, and so it is for every one of us. Not only are we sinners by birth, but we are sinners by choice. 
Ruth's natural condition is working against her because she has become a part of this nation that is outside of God. And so it is with you and with me. Our natural condition proves by our sin and selfishness that we work against a gracious God every day. Third, we're needy. And Ruth knows that God has the right to judge, and so do we. And lastly, we have no merit, at least no merit to earn our salvation. You might say, well, I'm not that bad of a guy, and I'm certainly better than that guy. i got to have at least a little bit of merit, but not standing before a holy God. And yet, just as Boaz will be the picture of Jesus who comes to give his grace and extend forgiveness and take in and bring home and love and protect and provide for one who was born in the wrong place at the wrong time, he would bring him home and make her his own. So Christ will do that for you and bring you in to protect and provide and change your destiny. Friend, do you know Christ? If not yet, then now you know something about the God of the universe by the way you see him work in Ruth's life. He calls, and he calls to rebels, not so that they would make themselves better, but so that they would come and be transformed. Come to Christ. Start following him. Find a friend who's here today and talk with them if you have more questions. If you're here and you already know the Lord this morning, then be encouraged. Be encouraged by Ruth's example in casting her trust upon the Lord and knowing that her circumstances didn't define her and neither do yours or mine. Your circumstances can't make or break you, but your trust does. You are trusting in something. I'm trusting in something. If I'm not actively trusting in the Lord, then at the end of the day, I'm trusting in myself or something I have or something that I expect somebody else to do for me. I uh, learned a concept a long time ago. I've repeated uh, a handful of times with different people in talking with them about going through difficult situations and having to make hard decisions and encouraging them. Here, here, here's what I want to encourage you with. You are going to take a risk no matter what you do. And you're going to trust something no matter what choice you make. Your job is to figure out ri which risk God is calling you to take. You might say, no, over here, there's not much risk. This is the safe option. If God ain't in it, it ain't safe. So you best know what the risk is, right? And he's calling you to trust in something. The question is, are you conscious about what that is, and are you making that choice, or is it just happening to you, right? So that's an encouragement for us today. Where has the Lord called us to trust him? Because of his providence and his grace, in any situation, we can cast ourselves fully upon him. Ruth doesn't know what's going to happen when she goes out to the fields. She might get booed and hissed and chased out of the field by the Israelites. She doesn't know. She, she might be molested by Israelite men who seek to take advantage of this husbandless, poor, vulnerable young woman. The, the hints are there in the passage, right, if you read it that that kind of a thing could happen. But God provides for Ruth and ultimately for Naomi much, much more than they could ever deserve. And so he does for you and for me. What a great God he is. Unmerited favor comes to the willing and the unworthy. Third, God's purpose 
seeks out the submitted soul. God's purpose seeks out the submitted soul. Let's look at the blessing that Boaz now gives. Pick up in verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, so they've taken a break in the midst of the day. Everybody's, uh, you know, in the tent having lunch or whatever. Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar, he says to Ruth. So she sat beside the reapers. She was probably off by herself, feeling like she couldn't even sit together with the others. But he brings her in, not just with the Israelites, but with his own workers. She sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out from her some grain from the bundles and and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. What a sweet thing Boaz does at this point. Taking a foreigner and an outcast and a needy woman and saying, hey, why don't you come sit at the head table with us? And then when I read it this time around, and I know I've read it before, but I forget quickly. I read what it says in verse 14, and I thought, surely that doesn't mean what it says, that he served her. Surely that's just a gloss. It's like what what, what it really means is he asked one of his servants to give, hey, would you see to it that she has, you know, a leg of lamb for lunch? He served her, right? I'm like, surely that's, that's what it means, right? No, I don't think so. And the more I looked and checked commentaries and the language behind it and whatever, it seems to mean exactly what it says. He made sure, here you go, here's some lunch for you. Wow, what an amazing thing to do, especially in a culture of honor, to be called up to the head table and, and to be served by the host of the meal. Wow. Here we have a godly man caring for a woman in need. And he cares for her, not with what probably would be the motive that most of us would immediately assume. He cares for her like a father caring for his daughter. That's the motive at this point. Now, I won't say that there is no romantic interest whatsoever from Boaz. I think that would be to go beyond what the passage says. But what the passage clearly does say is everything he says and everything he does, he does because, number one, he's a man of honor a man of valor, and he's honoring the law to help the needy. And second, because he sees her as almost like a needy daughter. And so as a father in the land, he takes it upon himself the responsibility to care for her need. It's here where we see the character of Boaz begin to shine. First, though, let's notice the blessing that Boaz gives. There's really a couple. Let's go back up to verse 11. Boaz replied to her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law, After the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, you came to the people you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work. Good enough, stop there. When I read those verses, was there anything previous to this that came to your mind? I'll tell you what this is almost an exact replica of. It's almost an exact replica of the covenant promise that Ruth made to Naomi back in chapter one. Here, let me remind you of Ruth's words to Naomi. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Cool. Super, super cool. What does Boaz say to Ruth in chapter 2? 
You have left. You have come. You are now among a people. May Yahweh, the God, bless you. He hits all four of the high points of her covenant promise to Naomi. I love it. I think Boaz is either a guy who somehow knows the story of what Ruth said to Naomi. That's possible. Or he is just a guy who's really lucky. No. He's a man of great insight and understanding whom God has blessed. And the words that come out of his mouth are the words of a man who observes. You know what 1 Peter 3, 7 commands husbands? It commands men to live with their wives in an understanding way. Husbands should be the best scientists in the world. They should be the best observers in the world. We're commanded to understand our wives. Great, I hope I don't have to do that to get to heaven because that's difficult aside from the joking. That's what we're commanded. Now, I don't think he does it as a husband or he's pursuing that, but he observes and he has insight. What a godly man. Boaz is a stud. He's awesome. And, and his words to her are just an echo of that covenant. And I have to think, superintended by the Spirit of God there, music to Ruth's ears as she hears the things he says. And, and she says, yes, yes, oh, oh, praise be to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yes, may it be just as you have said. What else does he do? He protects her. Verses 15 and 16, don't insult her. Don't rebuke her. Let her walk with the other maids. He provides for her. Protect and provide, by the way, is one of those great statements about what God does through the Savior for his people. It's what parents are commanded to do for their children. It's what really at some level or another everyone in authority is meant to do by the use of their authority in some way or another. Protect and provide. That's what Boaz does. How does he provide? Hey, man, why don't you, don't, don't only not pick up the stuff that falls, but pull out some stuff and throw it down so that Ruth can have it. Oh, looky there, a big old sheaf of grain. And then he even serves her lunch. I think he also, by virtue of what he says in 11 and 12, I think he also counsels her in the most gracious and fatherly way. He does not do this for the sake of impressing her, I don't think. I don't think he's doing it because he's trying to win over her romantic interests. In fact, in the middle of chapter 3, he will say to her in verse 10, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have not gone after the other young men. He's like shocked that she digs him, okay, in chapter 3. I don't, I don't think that was his plan, per se. This is not a Hollywood love story. Oh, there is a godly man of integrity and a beautiful, servant-hearted, willing woman of God. And their love story is gorgeous. But Hollywood is stupid compared to the book of Ruth. Because what God is doing in them is so much better, right? Boaz does it because he does it out of character. He does it out of the law, and not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. 
The law was meant to lead the faithful Israelite to do the works of God, and in so doing, when infused and, and partnered with faith, to create a glorious work of God that even transformed the heart. I, I don't get the sense to you that Boaz is begrudging. Great. Who brought the Moabite widow to my field of all fields? I guess I'm going to have to go serve her lunch now, right? And so how do, we, how do we respond? How do I respond to the commands of God? And Boaz is a beautiful picture for me and for you. Boaz does her good, I think, for the sake of God. I want to make two applications quickly here in this section. I want you first just to notice Boaz, and I've already said it. Boaz is a man among men. It, it, brothers, if we're looking for good examples to follow today, and they are few and far between, uh, let Boaz be, be one of the studs that we want to be like. Because he does what he does sacrificially, selflessly, uh, divinely. He's looking for supernatural glory for God. And on and on. You can draw other lessons. His will is obedient. His heart is sold. Where are the men? And if a Boaz were to walk among us, would we be stirred? Where are the men who will selflessly do the will of God, not for personal gain, but for God's glory and the benefit of others? That's the question, right? Men, can you serve God first and not your own tiny kingdom? Can you serve a woman? Can you serve your employer? Can you serve in this society as a man who can be counted on to do what's right even when it's difficult? Can you be a man of truth and holiness? You've, you've got a word to know. You've got a woman to love. You've got a spirit to follow. You have a king to serve. And some of you are saying, wait, 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 I'm single. I don't have a woman to love. Yes, you do. Her name is the church. But you get the point. And the people of God. First Timothy 6, but you, man of God, flee from all these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And on and on it goes. What a great call we have, brothers. Let's not sink to anything else. Notice Boaz. Second, brothers and sisters, notice Ruth. As Ruth submits to serve Naomi and ultimately to serve the Lord, what happens? God's purpose finds her. <laughs> I don't know what the will of God is. Should I do this or should I do that? I have no idea. Question is, are you obeying God today? Am I obeying God today with what I know to do? Because if I do, then the purpose of God will find me in his time, right? And that's a great place to be. Here, the faithful servant of God, Ruth, gets richly rewarded. She sits at the head table. She has a big lunch. In fact, it's so much food, she can't eat it all. She's like, hey, can I get a doggy bag? So she takes some stuff home in her box for her mom. Here, I'll say it again, the faithful servant of God gets richly rewarded. Now, just for the sake of we may not be able to pick up all the pieces by the time we finish chapter 4, let me pick it up now. Where will this reward ultimately climax? Answer, she is going to be the great-grandmother of King David. She is going to be an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Question. How is your life today going to impact 
three generations from now. Oh, I can impact my kids. I can impact my grandkids, Lord willing. I might see a great-grandkid, maybe. But how is your life and my life going to impact three generations from now? We ought to be thinking that far down the road, right? That'll help us in deciding where to invest in ourselves, men and women. God's purpose seeks out the submitted soul. Finally, this morning, we find the passage ends with great hope. Hope is the rewarder while God is still at work. Hope is the rewarder while God is still at work. Now I want to turn our attentions to Naomi. Because really the whole story is about Naomi. It's just easy to forget that because there's this cool love story that happens when she goes out to the field one day. But oh, the author brings us back. And we're really tracking what's happening with Naomi. 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. By the way, because uh, I, I, I don't know, I had to look up. One uh, commentator said an ephah is between 29 and 50 pounds. So we're talking like a big old sack of grain, okay? She took it up, and she went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took out and gave to Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. And she gives her the doggy bag. Her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, with whom she had worked, and she said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi grinned. Okay, that's not in the passage, but I can't help but think. <laughs> Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, this man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You shall stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So Ruth stayed by the, close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. What we have here is... The second turn in the story. Chapter 1, Naomi says, I went out full, but I came back with nothing. I went out with, with a husband and with two sons and with great hope, fleeing in a time, of, um, a time of famine. I came back 10 years later, and I was a widow. Both my sons were gone, and I just had one Moabite daughter-in-law. That's where chapter 2 starts. Where does chapter 2 end? Well, there's a 50-pound bag of grain leaning up against the wall, and there's a doggy bag of a really good lunch that the royal man would eat, and there is the hope, the hope of a man who maybe, just maybe, might be used if God's providence and grace will continue to meet Naomi finds fullness. We could see it in several different places. Um, it's there in verse 12. Boaz blesses Ruth, and he says, May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord. I don't know. Do you think uh, Ruth gets full wages that day? <laughs> yeah. All the other maids are jealous, right? Uh, verse 17, the ephah, already talked about that. And notice it says in verse 18, when Naomi saw, what Ruth had brought, because after she sees in verse 19, now she has hope. 
May he who took notice of you be blessed. What were the last words we've heard at the end of chapter 1 from Naomi? Actually, they weren't the last words we heard because in between she said, go work. Okay, but at the end of chapter 1, she said, I came home empty. Call me bitter. Now what is she saying? Bless God for using whoever he used today. Bless God. You see what's happening to Naomi? She's starting to come home, isn't she? She's starting to return. Her focus is now upon the Lord and what he has done. The clincher that we know that her focus has turned is really found in verse 20. After finding out that it was the Boaz guy, what does she say? May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. Can I give you another translation? May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his covenant love to the living and the dead. There's that word again, right? Right there in verse 20, chesed. She now knows and speaks of the gracious covenant commitment of the God of Israel to his people that he can never rescind. Oh, he promised if you disobey, you'll get curses. But as his people, he will always come after you. And so she says, I can't believe it. Look at the covenant goodness of God. Even when I said, he is my enemy. His hand is against me. He has afflicted me. He has taken everything away from me. Even then, God said, yeah, but I ain't done. And Naomi says, I see it. I see it. I stand on the other side and I go, blessed be the God of Israel for keeping his covenant even when I spurned him. Even when I questioned his character. The other piece we need to pick up in verse 20 is when she says, this man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Leviticus 25 had another provision for the, for the poor in the nation of Israel, specifically for the widows. If a woman had lost her husband and had no heir, the nearest male relative could take her in and provide for her. When, when Naomi says, this man is our relative, he's one of our closest relatives, all the Israelites go, oh, really? He could be the guy who could help, like this guy. He could actually really help if he's willing. And Boaz has, has really every excuse not to. Technically, Boaz's legal responsibility is really to Naomi, not to Ruth. And on top of that, Ruth is, oh yeah, a Moabite, so she doesn't even really fall under the covenant. But let's just see if he decides to nitpick like an attorney or if he decides to say, I'm all in. Well, you have to wait for chapter 3 for that. This fact that he is one of our closest relatives, another translation is the kinsman redeemer. That's the language that's used in Leviticus 25. A close male relative, whoever is the closest male relative, can take on the role of what's called the kinsman redeemer. That fact that Boaz just happens to be the kinsman redeemer or is close to it is going to drive the rest of the story. It's going to drive the rest of the book and it's going to be the link to God's redemption in the book and the ultimate link to God's redemption through Christ who will come through Boaz. Our chapter starts with Noah, with Naomi, pardon me, Naomi and Ruth, destitute and grasping. It ends with them provided for protected, and hopeful. The plot of Ruth chapter 2 
is how Ruth sound, found some security and got something for lunch. That's the plot. But the story of Ruth chapter 2 is how Naomi rediscovered grace and how Naomi rediscovered God. That's the story. Lord, grant that we would see your glory and that we would rejoice in your providence and grace. You and I stand at the intersection of grace and providence. And God is crazy good, isn't he? His ways are crazy perfect. That's what Ruth 2 tells us. Are you and I able to see that and embrace it and let our destinies be determined by it? Oh, that we would live for God's glory. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you so much that your timing, your location, your attention, your leading of people is all perfect in your providence. doesn't mean we don't sin and people don't dishonor your name and even do evil things. But Lord, you are God even over those to ultimately bring yourself praise and do your perfect will. We thank you for that today because we do not believe in a God who is good. Father, for my brothers here and for me, Lord, I pray, would you make us godly men? Would you grow us as men of God who use whatever strength you have given to bless, to serve, to protect, and to provide in whatever ways you have given us to do it, Lord, and do it unflinchingly, regardless of what the world says it is and what they call it and how they'll point fingers and they'll mock it. Who cares? They'll be gone quickly. But we want to have your commendation, Lord. Lord, let us all be like Ruth, who was unworthy, but so willing. Let us be like Ruth, who was so devoted, so loyal, and so faithful. And as she went about what you gave her to do, your purpose found her. That's what we want, and we want it for your glory. Thank you for your people, for your word, and for this chance to honor your name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you.